Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weber. In early June of 2023, the second annual NIL Summit was held at the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta, Georgia. Over 500 athletes traveled to Georgia to talk about NIL and grow their understanding of how to maximize their opportunities. The amount of attention and interest in what college athletes might be able to earn via this new marketplace is still being established. One thing is for certain, though, the sky appears to be the limit. My guest is Jason Belzer, the co-founder and CEO of Student Athlete NIL, also known as SANIL. It is the agency of record that specializes in assisting brands, universities, and athletes navigating their new era of name, image, and likenesses. Belzer's company manages 30-plus NIL collectives at universities across the country, including at Wake Forest, Georgia Tech, Rutgers, and Oklahoma. Oklahoma was recently recognized by the Sports Business Journal as a power player in the NIL space. Jason offers senior campus leaders an essential perspective in this fast-changing space. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you could join me today. Thank you for having me on, Karen. So we're two weeks post the 2023 NIL Summit in at the College Football Hall of Fame in Atlanta. Give our listeners a sense of where this idea came from and two years in, what's going on with it today? Sure. So the summit uh, is something that I um, started thinking about back when I was a student athlete uh, at Rutgers. And I had looked around the industry and said, it seems like there's... Um, you know, these big events for professional athletes, you have all-star weekend for the NBA, you have the Super Bowl for the NFL. Why isn't it that student athletes have an opportunity to come together, to share ideas, to celebrate? And then as I got into the industry, I saw that even more. If you go to the final four, you'll see big parties for ADs. Just last week, I was at NACTA in Florida, and you have this convention for administrators, and yet nothing for the student athletes. Mm. And so when name, image, and likeness started to become a reality, we immediately thought about how we can create a tentpole event that would essentially become the um, conference slash party slash thought leadership event for student athletes. And that was the genesis of the summit. Uh, we immediately partnered with the College Football Hall of Fame obviously an iconic venue in Atlanta, which is also sort of the mecca of college sports with the hall, with you know the Peach Bowl um, and everything else that's going on there. And a lot of big brands that op obviously operate in the space, including Coca-Cola and Home Depot and others. Um, and so this past year was our second uh, annual event. Uh, we had over 400 student athletes and administrators in attendance. Uh, we had over 30 different brand partners, including organizations like Lululemon, uh, Instagram, Kia, Celsius, Invesco, QQQ. Um, and it was amazing. Uh, the event starts off with the NIL Awards, which is sort of the Oscars of NIL. Uh, and then it's a day and a half of panels and sessions and workshops. And um, we believe that this event based on social media impressions is one of the top, if not the top event in the world in terms of the amount of social media impressions that we generate from an average attendee. And that just goes to show the power of the student athletes and their ability to be able to influence people around them. 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And I too have followed the social media engagement that people have shared. And and just even from the first year to the second year, yep. it, it's sort of like you got more of the kinks worked out, the athletes got a little more comfortable. What do you hope the athletes will bring to the event? And that will what will they take away from the event? Uh, we don't ask them to bring much of anything other than an open mind. We want them to be able to learn, to be able to um, share ideas. And the the interesting thing about NIL, one of the challenges that the industry faces is that NIL is transient. Student athlete comes in, they have four or five years to make the most of it, and then they're done. And so one of the things that the industry will always need is education. And so the goal is to be able to bring these athletes in make them understand what they need to do to maximize the time that they have as a college student, because the vast majority of them, once college is over, they lose a lot of that brand equity, right? And so what can they do now to earn and to build themselves up and leverage NIL to launch themselves into the future, whether that's being an influencer or a professional athlete, or just an average Joe that uses the time that they had in school to be able to give them a little bit of an advantage for the rest of their life. So you've certainly heard a lot of athletes, particularly in March Madness, talk about, you know, the excitement of the exposure that they've gotten, they've gotten, and and some of the LSU women's basketball players, Angel Reese and some of the others, really have talked about how more uh, financially lucrative it is to stay in college now, because the salaries are just not anywhere near that, that place in the WNBA right now. Do you see first- Angel's comments reflecting on a deeper level of, of athletes, not just the very top line. And secondly, do you think the WNBA and other leagues might take a little um, tip from what you're doing with the summit? Yeah. So uh, it's a, it's a multi-pronged question. The short answer is that yes, clearly student athletes are now making substantially more money than they've ever done. Um, and that goes across the average. So uh, two weeks ago at the summit, we released the first ever average numbers for data across our collectives. The average Power 5 football player right now is earning about $18,500 from their collective, which if you extrapolate over a four or five year period is about $100,000. It's a lot of money, right? That's a nice chunk of change to be able to come out of college with, especially if you wanna go to grad school or do whatever it is that is out there. Obviously some of them are earning substantially more money, And the top female student athletes, including sports like basketball, like the Angel Reese's and Flau Jays of the world and Paige Buchers, they are earning a lot of money. And so it doesn't make sense for them to go to the NBA. You look at that, though, on the professional, on the men's side, though, it's the same. Last year or this year, there was a reduction of about 38 percent of um, individuals entering into the NFL draft which is substantial. It means that all those student athletes that thought they were going to go make it pro decided to stay in college for an extra year because they're making good money through NIL. And that's fantastic, right? That's the market readjusting itself to be able to say, no, it's more valuable for you to be here, to play on a college team, to use that brand, to leverage, to grow. And if you take away the collective dollars per average, women are making substantially more than men. Uh, because they're just better at being an influencer. They're better at marketing themselves. And there's a lot of other reasons behind that as well. 
Yeah. One of the things that's been fascinating to me is this idea of player retention in college. And because the, the sense has always been that the college experience was just a stop onto, onto the professional life. I look at a player like Derek Lively, who played for Duke this year, top freshman, who decided not to stay in college. He's going to go right to the NBA. But other, other players like Angel Reese and, and others have thought, you know what, it's worth it for me to stay in college. How do you see that decision-making expanding and also in light of the transfer portal uh, modifications? Yeah, so I think the transfer portal is a mess, um, to say the least. Uh, and it's primarily because obviously I'm a big advocate for student-athlete rights. I'm not sure how I feel about this uh free agency model, right? Yeah. That's caused a lot of it. What ends up happening, we'll just take men's basketball for an example. One third of all of men's basketball athletes entered in the transfer portal this past year. One third of that one third, uh, I think about 40%, if not a little bit more, ended up nowhere. So you're talking about, you know, 20% of all athletes that were on a roster this past season are no longer on a roster anywhere because they entered the portal with the expectation that they were going to get something from somewhere else and ended up with nothing. That's not healthy, yeah. period, end of story. Now, a bunch of people may tell you, well, everyone has personal will, they can make their own decisions, but it, these are kids, right? They don't have better understanding and that's never going to get resolved. There's a reason why the government has certain rules, right? If, if we knew what we were, we have speed limits, right? And yes, if you're smart, you're not going to drive 100 miles an hour, even if there was no speed limit. But that doesn't mean that everybody understands that. And that's why the government steps in. And so that's the sort of point, right? The NCAA exists to be able to create guardrails for the protection of 18 to 22 year olds. And clearly, they're incapable of doing that right now because of everything that goes around with the litigiousness of, of college sports. Um, but yes, the transfer portal is driving substantial dollars. We found that the top 10 athletes in both football and men's basketball are garnering over a half a million dollars on average in the transfer portal. Even the top 100 are getting well into the six figures. That's a lot of money. And I don't believe that's sustainable, at least not based on the models that exist today. And especially with everything that just recently happened regarding the IRS and tax deductibility of donations, there's a huge bubble and it just got popped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's build a little bit on that. You and I met in D.C. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, President uh, NCAA President Charlie Baker talked a lot about trying to get Congress to create some guardrails. There were a lot of collectives uh, sitting in that room, which was very interesting as well. What were some of your takeaways from that D.C. Uh, conference? Um, the takeaways were that I'm glad that it happened because it was necessary. But I think that uh, that information should have been out there already, right? Uh, I'm not sure that I will ever rely on Congress to make a decision. And, you know, Karen, this, this podcast is for university presidents. One of the reasons why the university presidents, and rightfully so, don't know a lot about college athletics is that in the grander scheme from a financial standpoint, college athletics is a very small piece of a larger ecosystem. Well, it's an even smaller piece of an ecosystem of our government and everything else that's going on. So we have a whole lot more to worry about. You know, in Congress has a whole lot more to worry about with the war in Ukraine and inflation and the economy and all of those things 
than figuring out college athletics. And so I'm not necessarily optimistic that we'll see anything. And what's interesting is at the same time, if you look at the bills that have been proposed, they're all over the place. There's a lot of self-interest in them. It's pretty clear. Um, and so do I believe that there should be some sort of transparency uh, in the system? Absolutely. That's why we came out and we released those numbers because we operate more collectives than anybody else. And so we see what's happening in the marketplace. Um, but at the end of the day, and I, I said this to, to Charlie Baker when he was there, I said, we released those numbers and I've offered these numbers to the NCAA many times and they haven't you know, taken me up on that request. Yeah. Um, and so it's out there and people are willing to give them, but I think there's sort of a hear no evil, see no evil type approach to everything that's happening right now. And so um, we'll see what ends up happening from that event. You make some excellent points, and it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast three and a half years ago. I want presidents to understand how muddled this whole space is, and it's only gotten more muddled in the last two plus years since since the pandemic uh, began to recede. So what would you want presidents to understand about this moment in time right now and what kinds of questions they should be asking of their athletics people? Yeah, so there's a couple of different things. I'll start with something that nobody talks about other than me, um, is that NIL is the largest redistribution of wealth in the history of the United States outside of Social Security and welfare. Hmm. There is hundreds of millions of dollars that is now flowing to predominantly African-American males and females. But either way, it's flowing to 18 to 22-year-olds. So forget about athletics for a moment. For the first time in the history of the United States, there is substantial money that is now on campuses by students. 18 to 22-year-olds walking around your college campus have money. That's something that's important to know because, number one, as a university, your job is to educate your students on how to best make sure that they are spending their money, making their money, paying their taxes. So that's number one. But that's also an incredible opportunity to potentially work with your students to recapture some of those dollars, hmm. right? How do you go and make sure that those student athletes are investing their money properly and potentially reinvesting their money back into the university communities that are allowing them to make those dollars? And so think about it. There are collectives that pay upwards of five, $10 million a year. That's a whole lot of money that could potentially be going to the university community in some sort of capacity. And then thinking about, over the long run, how do you capture and ensure that those athletes are connected to the universities that have allowed them to be able to make that type of money? That's number one. But number two, this is essentially moving towards some sort of professionalization of sports, whether this ends up in some sort of revenue stream or whatever that is, or revenue sharing model. NIL is here to stay. It's not going to go back. And even if there might be some guardrails around it, this impacts your university substantially, especially if you're a school that has 100,000 people showing up on a Saturday for a football game. You can't just pretend that it's going to go away. And it's not about necessarily being competitive or not competitive in NIL. It's understanding how this affects your entire university ecosystem, how it affects your, um, your professors, the other students that are not receiving this money, all of those different pieces. This is, it's a shock to the system, good or bad, and you need to be on top of it because it can negatively affect your university long-term if you're not thinking through the consequences of it. 
One of the things that I hear a lot about, and in fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be speaking at the uh, Council for the Advancement and Support of Education Summit in New York City about this very tension that exists between collectives focusing on attracting and retaining athletes through the NIL versus the perception that that money is then no longer going to the athletic department or to the university where they have needs as well. They're worried about the dollars being pulled in too many directions. How would you address that? So the, I don't, I don't, we at Student Athlete NIL do not believe that the donor collective model is sustainable. And the reason why the donor collective model even exists is because it was essentially a quick thinking way for collectives who aren't having the best, especially 501c3 collectives, who aren't thinking about doing charitable and philanthropic things. They're thinking about how they pay the student athletes to essentially launder money in order to get it into the hands of the student athletes as quickly as possible. So yes, clearly the pie isn't being made bigger right now. The pie is getting split, right? If there was 3 million that was going to the athletic department and it's now it's going to the collective, that's an issue. That's not gonna be sustainable long-term because number one, in a bad economy, people are not gonna give money. Number two, in a good economy and you have a good return on investment by your teams performing well, it's going to end up costing you more money to be able to pay for those payrolls. And so long term, what universities need to be thinking about is creating a sustainable model, right? How do you create real NIL through businesses and members subscribers that are driving reoccurring revenue that are not dependent on your donors, just throwing money at players, hoping that your coaches have the wherewithal to be able to buy the right ones, because it's not going to work. And the example that I like to give, I'll use the SEC conference as an example. Let's say hypothetically that every SEC school raises $10 million and goes and pays their football teams that amount of money in a given year. At the end of the year, the team standings are going to be one through 14. And whoever ends up on the bottom, they're not going to be happy. All those donors are going to say, I pay $10 million and I finish last. Yeah. Good luck the next year. And what's going to end up happening is eventually all that money is going to disappear anyway. And the schools that are going to be left standing are the ones that are going to have figured out how to create a real sustainable stream. So what does that look like? What does real sustainability look like? Well, our business model is based on building a subscription-based revenue stream. We believe that at every Power of Five institution, you can average about 10,000 fans paying around $25 a month, which equates to around... Uh, $3 million in revenue on an annual basis. Um, and for that, they want benefits. They want content. They want exclusive experiences and experiential. They want apparel. Uh, they want their son or daughter to be able to interact with student athletes in ways that they maybe weren't allowed to before. That's where the value is. And so at an institution like Oklahoma, where we operate, where they have 90,000 people in a football stadium on a Saturday, it's not uh, difficult to conceive that you can convert 10 or 15% of those people into paying subscribers. Uh, and that's sustainable, right? That's not $3 million that's coming from donors. That's money that's coming from people that are real fans. And then the next bucket are real business transactions, local, regional, and national companies that want to do real commercialized transaction with student athletes. Our entire thesis is that student athletes are the greatest grassroots influencers of all time. If you are a business, particularly a local or regional business that wants to promote their organization, there is no better influencer to leverage than a student athlete. 
they're well known, they're admired, they have tremendous niche reach into local communities. And so if you can harness the power that they bring, that is what creates a real compelling opportunity. I would just like Karen, uh, and hopefully the people that are listening to this podcast are old enough to remember getting the big yellow pages book. And you open it up and you have the plumbers and the contractors and the lawyers in there. Well, the money that's being spent there now is no longer, right? It's moving to influencer marketing. But for the average local business, signing some Instagram superstar to promote their business is not going to do much for them. But signing an athlete, student athlete, that people can resonate and actually reach their niche demographic of the you know, the families that live within 25 square miles of my business, that's real opportunity. The problem is those businesses don't have the capability to do that now. And that's what we're trying to build with our collectives is a mechanism that allows them to do that seamlessly and create real return on investment and in the process, pay the student athletes. It sounds like what you're asking colleges, senior leaders, especially to understand that this is this is a plus and not a division of the pie as it remains, but it's about growing the pie. Is that fair? That's exactly correct. Yes. We want to figure out how to make the pie bigger, be pragmatic rather than cut up an existing piece. Okay. One of the uh, hiccups that I saw this year was uh, collectives. And I think it was at the University of Iowa. Uh, we're angry that the university wasn't sharing its email lists. In other words, we want to be able to market to these folks. Why won't you share your list with us? Because we're trying to help you. Yep. Explain that to us. And, and what would you recommend? Yeah. So first of all, and we see this across collectives and schools that we operate at and ones that we have conversations with. If you don't have an aligned strategy from NIL, you're not going to be successful. And what I mean by that is if that the university president and the board does not prioritize NIL, then the AD will not prioritize NIL. And if the AD does not prioritize NIL, then nobody around them will prioritize it as well. Now, if they do and they say, we care about NIL, we have to raise money, then the AD can feel like, hey, because there's no administrator, there's no athletic director that ever lost their job if they were a good fundraiser. It just doesn't happen, right? And every university president knows that. And so, and then, AD who knows they're being judged primarily on how much money they raise. If at the end of the day, they know that, oh, I raised 20 million this year, but next year I'm going to raise only 15 because five is going to go to the collective. And that means that my number is going to drop by 25%. That's going to reflect poorly on me. But if the university president says, no, this is important, then that changes it. And the same thing happens for the people below the AD. Because if the AD tells his external people, his development people, hey, I am going to credit every dollar you raise for the collective the same way as if you were raising it for the university in a new capital project, then there's synergy from that perspective. Okay. The problem is that I don't blame Iowa or other universities for not giving their donor lists to a collective. To me, that's actually a bad idea. If the if you're not sure whether or not the collective has the best interest in mind of the university, whether or not they're being run properly, if it's a part-time operation by somebody, why would I give up a list that I've been cultivating for yeah. 50 years to some Joe Schmo who says they have the best interest of the university in mind? Right, right. We work with universities and they will often send messaging on our behalf which to me is as good as having that list myself because I'm not going to um, 
you know, it doesn't matter if it's coming from me. In fact, it usually comes better from the university because the university's credibility matter. But I can assure you that the university is absolutely sure that we as an entity have their best interest in mind, right? And so eventually, most universities will give in, hopefully, once they see that their collectives are, in fact, well-managed. And, and one of the ways that we do that, Karen, is that at all of our school partners, even though we don't have contracts with the university, every dollar that we raise, including who gave it to us, goes to the university. They have full transparency. You send us a list, we raise $100,000. I will tell you all 400 people that contributed in order for us to get to that $1,000. And so the university doesn't lose anything in the process. And in fact, what's interesting is that we've had scenarios in which we've raised money, reported it to the university, and the university says, wow, this person gave a couple of thousand dollars and they've never given directly to the athletics department. Perhaps we should have a conversation with them about gifts to the department itself. So, and it's because people, they're not necessarily reaching everybody and vice versa. This is part of the transparency that you're talking about, yes. right? And it's a two-way transparency. Yes, we'll review the we'll reveal the, uh, it, the amount of money that the athletes are are earning, so that you have a general idea. But also, we'll allow our donors in the collective to actually engage with the university. That's what you're saying. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it begs the question then: How does Title IX fit in on this? Because one of the questions or concerns that folks have had is if the university provides too much input, too much oversight, then it'll trigger the Title IX uh, clause in all of this. So how do you manage what you're trying to do in, in, and bring the university into this and align your university objectives under this um, dark cloud? Let's put it that way. Yeah, so that, it's a challenge. The university is governed by Title IX. We are not. Uh, we are a organization that is obviously providing transparency to the university, which in turn helps because if the university sees, hey, we aren't raising a whole lot of money for women's sports, perhaps we need to make sure that that's a priority, they can do that, right? So that's the first piece is the transparency. The second piece is that at the end of the day, the market is going to decide. And Charlie Baker uh, was in the room, Karen, you were there, you heard it. He asked, what's the disparity between men's and women's sports as it relates to collectives? And I stood up and I said, it's 95% to the men. Yep. But that is the market. That is the free market making a decision that they want to put that money into men's basketball and football. The, the business market says opposite. The business market says, no, I'll pay more for women than I'll pay for men. But the majority of the money coming into collectives right now are donors. And so what can the university do to tell a private individual, I don't want you giving you know, $1,000 to football, I want you to split that evenly to men's and women's sports. It's not gonna happen, right? That's the reality of the situation. So we can only do what the market tells us, but we can inform the universities and give them the opportunity to go really drive money to their women's sports, if that's what matters to them at the end of the day. And we yeah. see that there are schools we work with that have done tremendous fundraising for women's sports, because there's an arbitrage opportunity. You invest $100,000 in NIL into a women's non-revenue sport, and you can get a pretty substantial return on investment for it, as compared to putting 100000 in for football, which is a drop in the bucket. 
Right, right, right. That may, that makes sense. Yeah, I've heard some uh, fundraisers say that they can if a donor says I want to give a million dollars to football, sometimes they'll suggest that perhaps they could give five hundred thousand dollars to football and five hundred thousand dollars to women's basketball in in an effort to try to balance that. You don't see that happening with these collectives. No, no. Yeah, we okay. rarely see rarely see a donor who makes a substantial contribution to a men's sport do so to a women's sport either they either the donor gives directly to women's sports or they give to the general fund of the collective which goes to all sports yeah but it's extremely rare that you know one donor is giving to another you know like i wouldn't do it as a personal right but um yeah it's very very rare yeah. That's why it's a 95%, 5% split. Yeah. yeah. It, it seems like there are, there are the, the donor level that you're talking about, the $25 a month. Those are, those are fans. Those are people who are passionate about their teams. And that's an entirely different mindset than a donor who could give several million dollars. Is that what you're saying? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. hundred percent correct. So as, as we wrap our conversation up, you know, there, again, a lot going on. My hope is that those who are in senior leadership positions will listen carefully to this podcast because you've given us a lot of good information. But what's your one or two takeaways for presidents at this moment in time? My one or two takeaways, and, and we can go, if you, if you let me go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, is sure. um, NIL is more important to your universities than you can imagine. And what I mean by that is NIL is likely a transitionary period into what will eventually become a more professionalized model in college sports. And if we look at it, let's just go take at the high end, take a, the University of Alabama or Ohio State. What do you think if we could go sell Ohio State football on the open market, like an NFL franchise, how much would it be worth? Karen? Yeah, good question. I don't know. I would say well over a billion dollars. Okay. To not even think twice. It'd be worth well over a billion dollars. Imagine if there is one day where you have a semi-professional model and Jack Swarbrick and Notre Dame mentioned this a couple of months ago where there might be a day where some schools have a professional football team or, or basketball team that licenses itself from the university. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's Ohio State's endowment? It's probably about $2 billion. Yeah. So what ends up happening if a university could potentially sell off via license pieces of its team, all of a sudden there will be hundreds of millions of dollars now available to the university to leverage because it owns this immense valuable property that it can sell to the open market. It can sell to its alumni. So, and don't think that it won't happen because if the opportunity is there, universities are trying to figure out how to raise money every day. And if you can turn around and get 20, 30, 40, 50% of your endowment back by potentially professionalizing your team, you're going to do it, right? Even so, more of that money is going to start flowing to the student athletes. And that is money that your university needs to think about capturing, thinking about it from a stewardship standpoint, from an investment standpoint. I'll give you an example. We're working with the university and having conversations about leasing a land, piece of land from the university to build a residential commercial real estate project that will be primarily financed from the student athletes NIL earnings. And so building infrastructure from the university, leveraging those millions of dollars that are now flowing to the student athletes, 
that sounds like a pretty good investment for the university, if you ask yeah, me. Right? Yeah. So you need to be thinking about this strategically rather than thinking, oh, my Lord, this is just another burden that I have to handle. I think it's the opposite. I think it's a windfall for universities if you're smart about how you approach the process. Yeah, yeah. When you were saying that, it reminds me a little bit of the Green Bay Packers, yes. you know, with, with the way they were, they were, they're constructed. Everybody has a share or whatever. That's kind of what you're saying, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly the point is that there could be substantial amounts of money that could be earned. And what university is going to say to that when there's declining enrollment and all kinds of other issues, there are a lot of schools that would very quickly pounce on that opportunity and rightfully so. And for those college presidents who are not presidents of Ohio State or Alabama, how should they be thinking about this? At this well, but it's the time? same. Listen, yeah. I go to Rutgers. And I teach at Rutgers. I'm, it's my alma mater. And, you know, we run their collective and they've, you know, we've generated more than a million dollars this year. Right. I mean, our I, we believe the average power five collective can generate average of three to five million dollars a year even at a smaller institution it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year it's still money right it yeah, still accounts yeah. for something so it shouldn't change your outlook from that perspective but for some universities at the end of the day um if you don't invest into nil you're done you're just done right if you want to be a division one institution you need to invest into nil if you don't want to be a division one institution you know, you're done, right? Like that's the reality of it. And so I sus suspect that at the end of the day, some schools may choose to say, hey, we're not going to do this anymore at a D1 level. It doesn't make sense for us. Yeah, that's something I was thinking I about too. Some of these programs that have recently migrated from D2 to D1, are they prepared for this world? They yeah. are not. No, yeah. yeah, they are not. And to me, as a university president at a low major institution, the three D three model seems a lot more interesting than the D one model, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you get all those scholarships, you know, that's revenue for the university. There's a tremendous opportunity there. I mean, if I owned or managed my own division one low major institution, I would probably rather be a good D three than I would be a D one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's just the reality of it. I'd, uh, I'd rather be, uh, you know, Tufts than Binghamton. Yeah you know, you're not thinking too much about, you know, paying for your athletics department and dumping money into what could potentially be a losing proposition. That's only getting worse. Yeah. 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 I've often thought that D3 has a huge upside on its, on branding itself as a, a completely different athletic. Experience. And you can do NIL in D3 yes, too. It's the yes. interesting thing. So why Absolutely. not? Right. Absolutely. There could be some ways to create some really great arbitrage opportunities, but yeah. You got us thinking, Jason. That's really important stuff. But thank you so much for not only your thought leadership and all this, but being able to tell a compelling story. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on, Karen. Hopefully Thanks. this is enlightening for your listeners. Hope so too.